The passage that was read over us this morning is a, a fascinating one for a number of reasons. First of all, it's just very interesting church history. 2,000 years ago, we see how they dealt with a particular problem that came up. That's interesting to me. But maybe even more than that, it's interesting how that problem was dealt with and, and some of the tension that might lie within the text where we see one thing apparently valued over another. Now, as we break open this text that on the surface is rather simple, but as we dig into it, it might get a little complex. I just want to lay out how we're going to get there today. What we're going to do today, I want us to see the plan. Um, it's important to recall that this, these seven verses weren't written to you and I. They weren't even written to a church necessarily. They were written to one guy, a man named Theophilus. We see him at the beginning of Luke's gospel. We see him again at the beginning of Acts. And so it's important for us, before we ever deal with, well, how do we mess with this text ourselves, it's important for us to understand what it would have meant for him, how Theophilus would have understood this particular letter. And so we're going to spend the first little bit of time just walking through what the text meant 2,000 years ago. But then, because you and I are, are not Greek-speaking, Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, we don't live in the Mediterranean, we're not in the first century, we don't live under the rule or the, the shadow of the Roman Empire, there's a lot of historical and cultural differences between you and me and, and, and the first century audience. So... We can't necessarily pick this up and just apply it verbatim. So what we're going to look for, after we understand what it meant for Theophilus, we're going to spend a little bit of time digging around for some of those overarching foundational principles that sit within the text. And then we can take those and ask, what, what weight do those have to bear on our lives today? So that's just what we're going to be doing. Now this text is fascinating, again, because it's got some, it, it seems to um, speak to priorities. Priorities are inescapable. They exist. Sometimes they're appropriate. Other times they're not. Um, in my house, we're often looking for uh, the right balance of, of fun and like orderliness and cleanliness around the house. I don't know if you guys have um, small children now or many of you have at some point, but the, the fun of a five and a three-year-old is rather destructive. It just undoes virtually everything my wife tries to do to keep the house together. And, and so, which do we prioritize? Do we let them kind of run free, or do we insist that it remain just so? I don't know the answer. A little bit of both. That's a pretty benign example. Um, last week, we had an election and elections are nothing if not choosing what you prioritize over other things. Are you a fan of, you know, sometimes these things are pitted against one another. I don't know if they have to be, but they often are skewed in such a way that they are just diametrically opposed. But are you a fan of like a large government or a free market? Or maybe it's a small government or like social compassion. These things are often, we're trying to prioritize one over the other and, and see, do they integrate or are they complete opposites and they can't coexist? 
uh, before I went into full-time ministry, I actually worked in the building industry, specifically on the design side. And um, when you're sitting down with the client to work through what they'd like from you and, and how it's all going to work out, as all clients do in any industry, they want the best possible product for the least amount of money. That's just how it works. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we would run into a, a situation where we're, we're asking for too much relative to what we're willing to give. And sometimes we would slide a chart that looks a lot like this across the table to help them understand how this works. You cannot have all three. You cannot have something that is delivered quickly and it's a very, very high quality and then it doesn't cost you much. You see where those three circles interlap? That's the impossible utopia. We would tell people, what you're asking for is a building shaped like and built out of unicorn horns. They don't exist. Can't have really, really good design, an inexpensive product, and delivered tomorrow. Just not going to happen. Pick two. It's kind of like Panera. Pick two. Um, you can have it fast and great. Well, look at where they overlap. Well, you get what you pay for. You're going to pay through the nose to get fast and great. Do you want us to expedite your project, put it ahead of other ones, and do it quickly at a high quality? It's going to be expensive, but it can be done. No, I'm, I'm not really in the mood for that. Okay, well, let's go with cheap and great. Just so you know, you will not be the priority if it's cheap and great. It will be just in time to be too late. And then my favorite one is, do you want it fast and cheap? Well, just no illusions about greatness. It is going to be dipped in ugly sauce with haste and carelessness if you want it fast and cheap. And then for the strange people that wanted it fast and great and free, we would just say, go away. That's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. Well, much of life is, is sorting through priorities. Which is going to... Um, rise to the, the top of the, of the pile and, and really get most of our attention and most of our focus. And when, when something has to fall by the wayside, we're going, to, we're going to let these other things go, but we can't let this one go. And, and we're looking at a passage where the early church is having to think in similar ways. They're prioritizing certain things over another. Which is interesting because I don't know if it means that one thing matters more than the other, but it might matter in a different way. And it might matter for different people in different ways. So let's just walk through this text again and, and say, I'm, I'm grateful that we could have it read over us. Let's, let's walk through it and just answer the question, what did this mean to Theophilus? We got a couple of things in here that we might need to explain to bring us up to speed on Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. And you see a number of priorities, a number of issues where one thing is prioritized over another. And first, you have these widows. These widows. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing, okay? So with growth, growth is a good thing, but with growth comes complexity. The complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's talk for a second about being a widow in the ancient world. In a world where there were no retirement plans, there were no social safety nets, whereby the, the government was going to, to care for you or you've put into some sort of collective kitty that you're going to be able to pull from. That's, that's a modern thing. One of the big re you had two big reasons that in the ancient world you would value sons. 
you would prioritize sons over daughters. And, and right or wrong, it was very practical for them. One, if, if much of our life is dominated by agriculture, we need labor. We're going to make some labor. We need sons to work things for us. But two, when dad passes away and mom needs cared for, she's going to move in with one of her sons and his family will care for her. And if you didn't have those options available to you in the ancient world, good luck. Good luck. Life was difficult. Now, in the Jewish community, things were a little different. In the Jewish community, we didn't let anyone who didn't have an immediate family member there to care for him or her, we didn't let them just starve. The, the, the Old Testament laws had provisions for caring for widows and for orphans. And so you would have the temple distributing the funds or the food and caring for the community that needed caring for. Now, uh, what's the difference between so, uh, a Hellenist and a Hebrew? Well, a Hebrew would be someone who was native to Palestine, the area in and around Jerusalem and Judea. Likely they spoke um, Aramaic, though some might even be super old school, still speaking Hebrew. But they were culturally very Jewish, even though we're talking about the church here. Even though they've now become Christians, they're culturally very Jewish. The Hellenists were not so much. Hellenists is just a funny, it's just a funny way of saying they've been Greekified. They have likely moved away at some point out into a more Greek-speaking area where the culture is decidedly Greek. Still Jews at, at one point, and then when they convert to, to, to follow Jesus, they become Hellenist Christians, Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Christians. And there's Hebrew um, cultured, Aramaic-speaking Christians, and, and we have this group of widows. Again, the church is growing. We have these widows. What do we do with them? For whatever reason, it never says why. You can read into it all sorts of prejudice and bias, but let's not read into what the text never speaks to. For some reason, the Greek-speaking Christian widows were not getting their fair shake. They were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so something's being prioritized there, and, and Luke doesn't really give us much more information than that. But then there's the next line in verse 2, where another priority bubbles up. It says, and the twelve summoned, that would be the, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. They gathered up the whole church and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's the line that sometimes we struggle with. It doesn't say Peter, but one of the leaders of the apostles said, that this isn't good for us to be doing right now. Um, before we get too upset with them, let's remember that to this point, that's exactly what they've been doing. They've been serving tables. In Acts 2, when people are bringing in all their belongings, in Acts 5, when people are bringing all their belongings, it's the apostles that are, that are administrating all of this. They're the ones taking things in and then distributing it back out. It's not as though they're against service. I think they have a practical problem on their hands. It's getting so big, we can no longer manage this and rightfully prioritize the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. If you remember the very beginning of Acts, in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8, 
Go therefore and, and preach the gospel. Where? Into Jerusalem? And keep going. To Judea? How far? All the way to Samaria. Okay, that's pretty far. Keep going. All the way to the end of the earth. Do you know who he said that to? Not the church. Those are instructions to the apostles. In fact, we often take Matthew 28, the Great Commission, as instructions to the church, and at some level I would say that it probably is, but it's not given to the church. It's initially spoken to the twelve. But when, when that happens, we, we start to see that they've been commissioned to do something very unique. If you're in the early church in Jerusalem, and this message needs to go all the way to Samaria and the end of the earth, who are you going to pick to do it? How about 12 guys that lived with Jesus for three years, saw him be baptized in the Jordan River, saw him raise the dead in Lazarus, saw him heal people, saw him proclaim the kingdom of God, spent many nights discussing the intricacies of this kingdom with them. They saw him accused of blasphemy. They saw him crucified on a cross. They saw him go into a grave, and then they saw him come back out. Then they saw him ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's, that's the 12 you want delivering the message, the eyewitnesses, especially in a community and in a culture where eyewitness testimony is everything. Those are the ones that need to be proclaiming this good news. They don't have a Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, none of these have been written yet. We have the Old Testament and this authoritative group that has spent time with Jesus and they know the message. And not only do they know the message, they're authoritative witnesses because they saw it with their own eyes. And so what the disciples have been doing, the apostles specifically, is they've been caring for this community as much as they're able and preaching the good news. You've seen them in Acts 4 and then again in the last half of Acts, 8, or Acts 5. They're being persecuted for their message and they're still going out and preaching. And yet they're still, quote, serving tables. But now the church has grown and they can't manage it anymore. They're not saying that serving tables is beneath them. They're saying it's, it cannot distract from our calling. There's been three interesting things that have tried to derail the church here in the first little bit of Acts. There's persecution, left and right. Hasn't stopped them. There's corruption with Ananias and Sapphira. Hasn't stopped them. Church continues to grow. Now they're at risk of, of being tempted toward distraction we just got to get these widows fed. We'll preach the gospel sometime, but we got to feed the widows and, and the disciples. Under the, I think the wisdom of the Holy Spirit were insightful enough to say, no. Take seven men and let them do it so that we can focus on what's best for the church. So they're prioritizing for themselves, specifically preaching over table service. And what's interesting in verse 4 it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And we have no room to be offended at what, what they've chosen to do because in verse 5 it says, what they said, please, the whole gathering. Everybody's like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do what you said. You guys go do that. That's what you're called to do. That's what you're equipped to do. That's what you're gifted to do. That's what you have the authority to do. Pick seven men, but they won't pick seven slouches. Even, they're even discerning in that. Administering benevolence, caring for people that are hungry. And they chose 
Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I mean, earlier in verse three, he said that they need to have a good reputation. They need to be full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit. There's a priority there. Not just anybody can do this. We need good, holy men, and that's, that's what they got, and then they list them out so that the disciples can focus on prayer in the ministry of the word. They set these men before the apostles, and they, they lay their hands on them, which is just another way of saying they commissioned them, like they were commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the good news. They, the, the apostles commissioned them to go and serve these tables. And then it says in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. I love that. Luke loves to just add these little lines about how the church is growing, and it seems to be after surprising events, persecution, and then the church grew. They had a a minor, you know, administrative need, and then they just handled it, and the church grew. Later on, you'll see, and they tried to kill Paul twice, and the church grew. It's so fascinating where Luke stops to tell us, and the church is growing, So you have the word of God continuing to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Priests, so don't think high priests, think everyday run-of-the-mill priests who only served one week a year. Otherwise, he's a tradesman or a farmer. And then he comes and he says, many of the earliest converts to the church were priests and Pharisees and Essenes like desert people that like to live out away from society. Much of the early, I'm not saying even like a majority, but it's surprising for how much the, like bad press the Pharisees get that many of them were actually some of the earliest Christians, that when they weighed the evidence, they thought, that, oh wow, this Jesus really is the Messiah. It says that they were coming to the faith. Many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now this is a very particular situation. A very particular situation. So like I said, we can't take this and, and say, well, then we need to you know, sort things out here exactly as they did back then. But it does raise the question, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Because it's my job today to, to preach the word. Am I exempt from any sort of service? Like if I'm walking my way out here and I, and I see something that needs to be cleaned up, do I not have to do it because today I'm focusing on preaching? Does Jim Johnson not need to worry about going on mission trips because he spends a lot of his time working under the ministry of the word? And, and Another question that is raised is, is service somehow less important than proclamation or preaching? I don't get the sense that either one of those things are true from this particular text. In fact, I think a lot of times we come to this text and we, we think that it's saying something about the disciples and something about the seven servants. And I think that more than that, it's saying something about the value of the word of God. And so we have, uh, I want to pull some principles out of this. And the first one is this, that our ministry, and I can see this in this text and throughout the New Testament, our ministry must be centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ being, of course, that Jesus is God's Messiah sent to reconcile and redeem the world to him. That truth, it defines everything about who we are. Earlier I said that in Matthew 28, the Great Commission is given to the apostles. 
It says in verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It doesn't say go and serve widows. It doesn't say care for the poor. It doesn't say house the homeless. It just says teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. If I were to pull that into a phrase, I would say that's the ministry of the word. And then I would say, and by the way, Jesus said things like care for widows and orphans. Care for those who are in desperate need. Love one another. Forgive one another. Be compassionate with one another. But he doesn't start there. It's like he has, to, he has to redeem your heart for you to be able to do that. But once he has, that's expected. Does that make sense? And so one of the, one of the things that, that bothers me about a lot, of, um, a lot of social issues addressed by the church is that we sometimes make the remedy of whatever the social problem is, the salvation it becomes so central that it itself becomes salvation instead of remaining centered on the gospel. And then as that thing works through us, as the good news of Jesus transforms us, then we care for society, but not the other way around. One leads to the other. Starting here does not lead to the gospel. And I see that the gospel is held as the primary thing that animates everything about the church in the New Testament. Paul says later on in the book of Colossians, writing to the church in Colossae, he says in Colossians 4 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That's a really nice prayer when things are good, but notice Paul's situation. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He doesn't ask for the prison door to open. He asks for the doors of hard hearts to open. And that's, that's a special prayer. That's a, that is a man who understands which is most important, temporary relief or eternal gain. Verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he asked them to pray for the ministry of the word, to pray for it to be effective, and to pray for him to be clear. How many of us pray those prayers? Like, like we wake up on Sunday morning, and we just say, God, I'm about to come and engage in a Sunday school class, or I'm going to teach really little children, or I'm going to hear a sermon that your gospel would be effective in my heart and in the hearts of those that desperately need it. That, that I would be clear, that Jim would be clear. That hard hearts would soften and that we wouldn't speak over anybody's head but that we'd come right between their eyes and say, can you understand this Jesus? That's what Paul's praying for. And then he finishes it with, he says, 
And by the way, church in Colossae, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. In other words, be kind to people, be winsome, be likable. Why? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's a rather utilitarian view of, uh, of kindness. <laughs> be winsome. So that when it's time, when the, when the opportunity to speak the gospel is there, that you'll be heard and that it will be effective and then you'll be clear. I love how Paul places the centrality of the word about everything. Yes, be kind. I can't imagine a time when being kind um, would be a bad idea, except maybe certain situations. But generally speaking, be kind. Why? So that you have active ears, attentive ears when the time comes. So good relationships with others for the sake of the good news. The overwhelming story of the New Testament, Sunnybrook, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to everything about us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to everything about you and I. And when it is, when our priorities are appropriately ordered and the gospel is central, care and compassion are the natural overflow of lives that have been touched and centered on the gospel. Our ministry is then driven by the good news. If we center it on the good news, it will be driven by the good news. Back in Colossians, Colossians 3, Paul says this, Notice how he loads up all these gospel ideas as he's telling them how to live, as he's telling them how to care for one another and be compassionate. He says in Colossians 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, as ones who've been chosen by God, as the people of God, they're now holy and loved by God. Those are gospel ideas, right? In light of that, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He says, because you're chosen, be compassionate and kind. And because you've been forgiven, you can forgive. Like our ministry, where, where we, we, we care for one another, and, and when something goes wrong between Jake and I, we can forgive one another. That is conditioned upon the gospel being central to our lives. And then that stuff is just natural and normal. Not easy, but it is natural and normal. He continues in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the thankfulness in your hearts to God. So how do we do like holy, Christ-like ministry together? We let the word dwell in our hearts. This is actually my favorite passage to preach to a, um, 
soon-to-be-married couple in their wedding. I, do, I don't usually gravitate towards the passages in Genesis or other passages about romance or even husbands and wives in, in Ephesians. Those are great passages. This is my favorite, though. I will tell them that if you guys can figure out how to live like this, if you can recognize that as believers you're chosen and therefore you're compassionate and kind, as believers you're forgiven, therefore you're forgiving in your relationships, if you can center your lives on the word of God, like you're two broken though redeemed people coming together to form one life, that's complicated. That's complicated. But if you can live like this, that's gonna be a marriage that just images Christ to the world. If you can live like this, if, you, if the gospel is central in your life, it will drive you to live like this. But look at how he closes this section out in verse 17. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything. There's no Greek word study or interpretive hurdles that I can figure out for you that does anything to that word other than let it be everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. When the gospel is central to everything that we are, it starts to drive everything that we do. And when that happens, the overwhelming testimony of the scriptures and of the history of the church is that God grows his church. Churches that grow are, are a couple of things. They become more diverse as more and more people come in. And yet, because of the centrality of the gospel and the, the supremacy of Christ over his church, they are unified. They're both diverse and unified. And as we see in Acts 6, and as church history has played out, as the church grows, it gets complicated. It gets complicated. But I would say that that's probably a good sign of health. If your church never has to deal with anything, you might have plateaued. But as God's word moves through us, as God's word draws people in, it gets complicated. And that might be a good thing. The rest of the book of Acts actually shows that in the midst and maybe even sometimes because of complexity, the church grows. In Acts 9, um, the, uh, the, he'll soon be the apostle Paul, but then his name is Saul. And he is, he is not really thrilled with this whole, uh, this whole Christian thing. And so he's on his way to Damascus to shut it down. He's got some warrants. He's going to bring some people back. He's going to arrest them. And he has a little encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, uh, and Jesus kind of turns things around, puts some scales on his eyes, tell him, you're going you're gonna to kind of do my work now. Paul says, cool. And uh, he goes, and then um, he he's follows Jesus. He's, he's baptized. Scales fall off. And then in Damascus, he's preaching. He starts preaching the gospel. Now, there were some Jews in Damascus who were really excited about Saul coming because they thought that he was also against this whole Christianity thing. But on the way, Saul's change of heart became complicated. So they decide they want to kill him. Um, he has to escape Damascus by night, and it's this real cool like, spy story epic in, in Acts chapter 9. And he gets out of there, and then he goes back. And... Um, 
This time it's the Hellenists that don't like him. The Greek-speaking Jews are not fans of what Paul's doing or his message. And so they try to kill him. And so the best thing that everybody can, can you know, project that we ought to do is let's just get Paul out of here for a little while. Let's, let's let the dust settle. So they send him up to Tarsus, his hometown, oddly enough. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, after all that story, Jews trying to kill Paul, and then he gets away, and then the, the Greeks are trying to kill him. It says, so... The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The conditions didn't seem very good for the church to survive. The Jewish leadership was decidedly against her. The Roman government certainly against her. And yet she keeps growing. The church just kept growing. Next week, you'll hear um, a sermon about Stephen's sermon. Great sermon. It was so good, got him killed. And um, in the wake of his execution, the, the saints are scattered. Like, new Christians are like, we got to get out of here. They're throwing rocks at people that say things about Jesus. And so they, they get out of there. But they leave, and they keep preaching. They keep preaching in Phoenicia, in the island of Cyprus, and in Antioch. And then in Acts chapter 11, it said these people are out there. They've been scattered because of Stephen's execution, but they're out there. And it says in Acts eleven twenty one, 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. In, in the face of persecution, the church is growing. She's growing more diverse. She's unified under the one gospel. And when things get complicated, she grows. An interesting one is just the very next chapter. James, the brother of John, is executed by Herod. Um, and Herod realized that everybody liked it when he did that. And he's like, oh, you guys thought that was cool? Watch this. Put Peter in jail. And so Peter's execution is coming because of, uh, of Herod's political nature. And he, he, he didn't count on the fact that the Lord would send an angel in the night to free Peter from jail. Angel walks him out of the prison, walks him outside of the city gates, and then just vanishes. And Peter, like, wakes up. He thought he was dreaming. But he wakes up. He's like, oh, I'm free. So he goes, like, undercover to go tell the other disciples, hey, tell the guys I'm out, and then also tell them that I'm going to lay low for a while, and he gets out of there. And uh, Herod didn't know what to make of that, that empty jail cell. But it said in, uh, in 12, verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So some political stuff going on here. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon his throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Some flattery, you know, to get him on their good side. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And then I just love how Luke just throws it in there. But the word of God increased and multiplied. He killed James. We lost one of them. He tried to kill Peter, didn't work. Peter's 
He's laying low for a while, and the word of God continues to increase and multiply. Finally, in Acts 16, they've just finished up what's known as the Jerusalem Council. The church had to answer the question, hey, is it cool if Gentiles become Christians? Because uh, we've been out on the mission field, and we've seen a lot of Gentiles like, get the Holy Spirit. So are they in? And after a short discussion, they're like, yes, everybody's in. Gentiles and Jews are all, they can all be Christians. That was always the plan. Um, just abstain from sexual immorality and don't sacrifice, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Sound good? This is great news. Now, now, Paul is taking this message back out to the churches that he's already planted. People who already assume that they're Christians, he's coming out and saying, hey, we checked, with the, we checked back at the, the headquarters. Yes, we're all in. And it says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. There's an administrative meeting where we had to make some decisions. They go and deliver that message. It says in verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. How central to everything that we do is the proclamation of the word. Jesus has a lot of stories. He loves to tell stories in the Gospels, and a lot of them revolve around agriculture. He's telling stories that would have made sense to his audience. An agricultural society, he's telling them stories. And he, he tells a lot of stories that have farmers in them. And, you know, you, you think about, like, how that would have been heard to a first century society. How they would have listened to that. They would have, uh, they would have understood that it's a, it's a rather complicated ordeal to, you know, understand what crops it's, we should plant this year. Buy the appropriate seed. Make sure that all of our tools and utensils and equipment is in good working order. Well, how healthy are our animals? What's our labor force? Do we have enough sons? Do we need to hire some more laborers? I mean, they're, they're constantly looking at the skies and checking rainfall. They, like, they got to they gotta get this right. Do they know where they're going to sell? And do they know how much they need to, for themselves to survive? Do they know how all this is going to work? And, and it's amazing to think through what it would have been like to go through all of that trouble to get this crop to produce and to just forget the seed. To just forget the seed. The parable of the sower. Jesus tells them, hey, like the seed is the word of God. I want you to scatter it like a sloppy farmer. You're not a very good farmer. I want you to scatter it on the path. I want you to scatter it in soil you haven't even worked. That has rocks and this one has thorns. And I want you to scatter even some of it on good soil. And let me do the growing. Let me deal with that. But sometimes I think that we do a lot of preparation for the gospel and we forget the seed. We forget the word of God. It's, it's, it is a good thing to give someone who's starving a peanut butter sandwich. It is a cruel thing to only give someone who's starving a peanut butter sandwich and to temporarily solve a problem and leave them eternally in the wind. And our missionaries in Areas where there is great, like, physical need will tell you the same thing. They're not saying we don't, it's not like we don't need food. It's just that we need the gospel more than food. We need both. But if you're going to make us pick, we'll take the gospel. 
When the church grows, it becomes more diverse, unified, and complicated. When we have new members come, that's a sign of health. That's a sign that the word is at work. We have people show up that have physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, and we have to help them. That's a sign that the spirit is working through the gospel here. When there's sin in our community, and it needs to be rebuked and dealt with, or when someone's hurt and they need to be forgiven, that's a sign that the ministry is operating under the centrality of the gospel. When our message is not liked by the rest of the world, that is a sign that we are preaching the gospel. Now, you can, be, you can say all sorts of inflammatory things and get other people mad at you, but if you just keep preaching who Jesus is and people don't like you, that's good news. That's fine. That's a good sign of health. The fact that we have issues and problems to solve, that's a good thing. When we've rung this building out and we've run out of space and we need to build a children's wing, that's a good thing. That's a sign that the ministry of the word is flowing through this place and God is doing work and he's bringing people with little babies here and that's awesome. And by the way, one of the greatest ways to like grow a church is to just keep having babies from within. And so that building to me is an incredible sign of health. Complicated though it will be to fund and build, it is a sign of health. God never promised us it would be easy. Let me close with this. One of, my, um, one of my greatest fears for Sunnybrook, for us, I'm not talking about just you guys, I'm talking about us, is that we would regularly be in situations like a Sunday morning worship service or a Bible study or reading your Bible at home in your easy chair or working with kids where the word of God is there and God is speaking through his word. But I... I am just so concerned that so many of us do not care enough to stop and listen. Do not care enough to ask, how would you have me change in light of this truth about you, God? We'll go through all of this. We'll, we'll hear his word. We'll pray together. We'll sing about him and the, the deepest thought in our mind after that is, hey, what are we having for lunch? That's me sometimes too. Probably me a lot more than I won't admit. But if that's not you today, if you do sense a greater obligation to the gospel in light of the truth of scripture and the good news we have, I'm just gonna leave you with two things I'd like you to do today. I want you to find someone this week to proclaim the good news to. And I know for all of us that, that that's a mixed bag. Some of us are like, sweet, I got a long list. And other of us are like, ah, that makes me so nervous. If it does make you nervous, I'd like to talk to you. But it just seems that it's got to be so central to our lives that it just kind of falls out of our mouth left and right. And then I would say, preach the gospel also to yourself. And live in response to it. Live a life 
rooted in the kingdom of heaven now. We don't have to wait. Live it now. Live a holy life in response to the gospel. Live a compassionate life in response to the gospel. Live a righteous life of integrity in response to the gospel. I'm going to ask the servers to go pick up the communion trays. As they do, I will ask that you all just take a moment to uh, reflect on the first time that you heard the good news. Maybe it was for most of us, many of us, probably from our parents. For some of you, it might have even been a Gideon's Bible. That'd be awesome. I'm sure Gail slash me would be really interested in hearing that story, if that's the case. Some of you would be Sunday school teachers. For me, it's uh, multiple times, actually. (laughs) I heard it first, of course, through my family. But I never listened to it. It took me a long time to listen to it. I still remember being 19 years old and uh, feeling God's word cut me to the heart for the first time. Oddly enough, it was in the great bread of life passage, which makes sense here, of John chapter 6. But how central is the word of God to our lives as Christians? None of this makes sense without it. Nothing here in my hands makes sense without it. You can see righteous men and women left and right, and the the most you could conclude is that they're really good people. But you could not know who God is if he didn't reveal it to you. And you could not know what is wrong with you as a broken person if he didn't reveal it to you. And you could not know who Jesus is and why he came if he didn't reveal it to you. Sure, someone could tell you, but they could be wrong. But when God speaks through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit, he communicates who he is, who we are. And he helps us understand why we gather together weekly to to celebrate this bread. I need the word to know that it was a body of an actual human being who was also God that was given up for me. And I need the word to know that it was his actual blood that was spilled and paid my penalty. You and I might take this for granted every week. Maybe that's only because someone shared the word of God with us. Plenty of people across the world, plenty of people in this community that would walk in here right now and not have any clue what we're doing. And shame on us if we just take care of their physical needs and don't explain this to them. So reflecting back on what God has done for you through the ministry of the word, take the bread and the cup. <clears throat> 